And now it is time for Gray Matters. Well, hello. Jim and Dick are off enjoying the summer, so this is a repeat presentation of their Nixon Watergate show. They will be back next week with more live commentary and news. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And we're going to do a show tonight uh, dedicated to Watergate and the 40th anniversary of the final unraveling of the 37th President of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon. I <laughs> always wondered if that character on The Simpsons, Milhouse, oh, yeah, yeah. is... Uh, very, so, very much uh, named in, in honor. Because that is a kind of an odd name. I'm very sure that that's an f- old family name that uh, Nixon had. And who knows, maybe it's even connected to Herbert Hoover. I was reading a history book recently that noted that they were both Quakers, which is rather odd that Nixon was a Quaker, but uh, he was. At least he was raised as a Quaker. I don't think he was very Quakery, though. <laughs> I think he might have modified his religion after he got married to Pat, but uh, that uh, Richard Nixon and Her- Herbert Hoover were something like eighth cousins once removed or something. So they have some common genetic uh, pool, probably dating back to the... Uh, <laughs> Primordial ooze. <laughs> well, maybe back to Arthur, King Arthur and the round table. <laughs> Or the wrong table. Maybe that's a, one of the trick questions that they ask at the, you know, the den of death and the Mike Python and the Holy. What yeah, is the your, bridge of death. The bridge of death. What is your favorite color? Blue. No, yellow. Wah! Yeah, well, that's kind of what happened to Nixon. Maybe that, that's why. Indeed. Well, he changed his story a couple times. Resignation. <laughs> he flew over. He crossed the Rubicon and never came back. But yeah, the famous... Uh, scene of Nixon getting on the helicopter with the peace symbol. Waving those arms one last time. One last time for the American people. Anyway, Watergate, uh, what's interesting about 1974 is that this was kind of the final (laughs) nails in the coffin. Uh, It's interesting the uh, a couple of weeks ago I was mentioning this uh, New York Times, the White House transcripts This was published uh, in May of 1974, and it's quite obvious from the uh, introduction by R.W. Apple and his analysis that uh, Nixon's still in power. And uh, these, of course, were the transcripts that the White House had edited for the Irvin Committee. And there had been a series of sort of complex uh, legal negotiations that had been going on for some time. Interestingly, in 1974, uh, Leonard Garment had resigned as his personal lawyer, his White House lawyer. He had replaced John Dean when he was fired back on April 30th of 1973. Of course, the, the key dates in the Watergate saga continue to fascinate. We have the break-in itself, the smoking gun conversation couple of days later, uh, Nixon, on hearing the news of the break-in, allegedly was in the Bahamas or somewhere off the coast of Florida, and he threw an ashtray. 
visiting the home of uh, one of his financiers, Robert Aflac. Aflac. Aplanap. Yeah, very difficult name to pronounce, and I don't have his name in front of me. But anyway, on January 4th, uh, uh, it was announced that uh, Buzzard uh, was going to be replaced as the head of the White House Watergate legal team by Boston attorney James Sinclair, who was uh, certainly one of Nixon's final lawyers as uh, the, the scandal continued to unfold. Of course, the very famous beginning of the end for Nixon Alexander Butterfield revealed in testimony, public testimony actually, that Nixon had a secret taping system. That was back in July of uh, July 16th of 1973. And then, of course, the Saturday Night Massacre in the fall of 73 was really a crucial event that led to the downfall of Nixon. Archibald Cox, who'd been named special prosecutor, had uh, subpoenaed tapes that uh, he knew existed at that point, and uh, he was basically awaiting hearings in front of a lot of courts. There were a lot of different courts here in these cases. Just before that, by the way, just parenthetically, Vice President Agnew resigned on the 10th of October, 1973, on charges of income tax evasion to be replaced by Michigan's Gerald Ford on October 12th of 1973. But anyway, on October 20th, in what's known as the Saturday Night Massacre, Ron Ziegler, uh, Nixon's press secretary, at 8.25 p.m. held a news conference and announced the firing of Cox, Archibald Cox, and the resignation of Elliot Richardson, who was the attorney general at the time, the special prosecutor law at the time did not allow uh, him to be fired except by the attorney general. Nixon ordered Richardson to fire him. Richardson refused, so he resigned. And his deputy, uh, William Ruckelshouse, resigned, leaving, according to this chronology in the New York Times, Robert H. Bork as the solicitor general. He was named as acting attorney general. And he technically fired Cox. Now, this whole Saturday Night Massacre, of course, led to uh, Bork when he was appointed to the Supreme Court by Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, all kinds of difficulty because of this baggage that uh, he had in his career. Um, and uh, he, he served as acting attorney general very briefly. But in any case, he, he, he fired Cox and... Richardson and uh, Ruckel's house resigned, and that's what's known as the Saturday Night Massacre. And then at that point, it's just a series of events that continue to beleaguer Nixon's presidency. Uh, there's obviously revelations about tapes being uh, edited and changed. On the 17th of November, it's interesting, this is the famous television question-answer period where Nixon says, People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so Nixon was still in this mode where he thought he could kind of win this in the court of public opinion. He 
the Watergate tapes are fascinating in reading the sort of the siege mentality uh, that existed in the White House between Nixon and his aides at that point. Uh, Alexander Haig, by the way, had replaced Bob Haldeman as chief of staff. So it's fascinating to me when you begin to study Watergate how many of these names resurface in the Reagan administration. You have Alexander Haig, you have Richard Allen, you have uh, Robert Bork. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, all kinds of uh, common denominators. Well, George H.W. Bush. And, of course, Casper Weinberger. Yep, Cap Weinberger. George Schultz. Uh, Weinberger and Schultz served as cabinet officers in the Nixon White House and later in very powerful positions in the Reagan administration. Uh, Schultz was actually Secretary of Treasury uh, for a period under Richard Nixon. So it's just an amazing thing. Um, it's interesting in the New York Times chronology at the back of the book, they say on December 6th, according to Alexander Haig, White House lawyers had considered it possible that the 18-and-a-half-minute gap was caused by, quote, some sinister force, unquote. Hearings on the tape, these are congressional hearings, are recessed pending the report of the electronics experts. And, of course, it was revealed at this point that there were a number of gaps on the tape and erasures. Um, so the Senate... Uh, congressional committees had called in technical experts to see what could be retrieved and well, what not. The those tapes and of course this eighteen and a half minute gap are are, are legendary. Um, and in uh, Stanley Cutler's book Watergate: A Brief History with Documents, which is uh, uh, a nice slender single single volume history that shows uh, through these excerpted documents the chronology of events here actually uh, gives a uh, brief glimpse of the report from the advisory panel on these tapes uh, and the analysis of this erasure to uh, Chief Judge John Sirica. And this is an electronic uh, breakdown that recording engineers have done talking about the erratic functioning of the recorder itself and changes in the position of the operator's hand while running the recorder. Uh, in other words, this is not an accidental erasure. This is a deliberate erasure uh, that required the button to be held down for a prolonged period of time. They end their uh, report to uh, Judge Sirica by saying, Can speech sounds be detected under the buzzing? We think so. At three locations in the 18-and-a-half-minute section, we have observed a fragment of speech-like sound lasting less than one second. Each of the fragments lies exactly at a place on the tape that was missed by the erase head during the series of operations, blah, blah, blah. Can the speech be recovered? We think not. We know of no techniques that could recover intelligible speech from the buzz section. Even the fragments that we have observed are so heavily obscured that we cannot tell what was said. I wonder if these tapes still exist and if they're still available. I think the technology that exists today might actually be able to restore some of the gap. And, uh, of course, Rosemary Woods, Nixon's secretary, was made to uh, take the blame of this. Uh, Alexander Haig even going so far as to say, oh, you know how women are when they're on the phone. She wasn't paying attention, and she accidentally erased it while she was gabbing on the phone. Well, of course, that's rubbish because the, the tapes in which there were erasures or problems involve the uh, June 20th, 1972, 18-minute gap. That mm -hmm. was a conversation between Haldeman and Nixon. Mm -hmm. 
the first time they met after Watergate had become public. Watergate was a crime that occurred on the weekend. So, And Nixon was out of town. It's uh, funny how uh, these uh, famous historical events always involve the president being out of the room when the gun goes off. <laughs> That's a, uh, what happened? I, I came back as soon as I heard. It's a little uh, metaphor from uh, W.H. Auden. Uh, the other, uh, quote, conversations um, that were not recorded, quote, unquote, according to Nixon, before Judge Sirica, include a April 15th, 1973 meeting. And Nixon, uh, in a letter to uh, Judge Sirica, asserted that March 21st, 1973 was the first time that Dean had, quote, reported certain facts to him. Interestingly, on November 14th of 73, U.S. District Court Judge Gerard Gazelle Gazelle, ruled that the firing of Cox was a violation of Justice Department regulations which prohibits the dismissal of the special prosecutor except for extraordinary improprieties. Judge uh, Gerard Gazelle later uh, was the judge in the uh, Iran-Contra hearings involving Oliver North and those uh, criminals who were pardoned by George H.W. Bush, who appears in some of the tapes himself. Uh, He, of course, at the time was chairman of the RNC Mm -hmm. and was uh, troubled by how to handle the public relations regarding Watergate. He assures Nixon, by the way, in a conver- in a in a uh, meeting that they had at one point in the uh, abusive power book by Cutler that well this is this is kind of a Beltway story. I don't we don't get a lot of questions and uh, Cle- I think he mentions Cleveland and Wichita, but he says when I'm in New York and Washington, nothing but questions about Watergate, and he's troubled by what to say and how to deal with it. But uh, over time, Nixon's White House lawyers learn of the erasures. In fact, their chronology here reports that uh, um, on the 14th of uh, November, 1973, White House attorneys learn of an 18-minute gap in a June 20th tape conversation between Nixon and Haldeman. Um <laughs> And then, of course, Rosemary Wood testifies that she accidentally erased only five minutes of the tape while transcribing it, not the entire 18-and-a-half-minute gap. Alexander Haig, by the way, later revealed that there were seven to eight deliberate erasures of other tapes. So at some point, uh, Richard Nixon was listening to lots of tape. Yeah, you get a sort of a picture of him. Uh, Lenny Bruce kind of ended up that way, too, you know, being constantly bombarded by legal harassment for so-called obscenity, listening back to tapes of his own performances uh, and the trials and so forth. And here's Nixon uh, years later doing the same thing. Um, Probably worth reminding listeners just to contextualize the taping system. Nixon was not the first uh, to have a taping system. LBJ actually had one. Uh, And part of the reason Nixon was so uh, excited about taping everything was because of uh, 
well, uh, some money that might come to him later down the line because of uh, the presidential libraries that are established once an administration has served its term. Uh, any official papers that are generated, any documents and so forth, are just sort of given to the uh, library because they belong to the American people, uh, the president who served them. But the tapes could be privately owned. Yeah, and so and Nixon could, in, in fact, profit from their... And of course, John Later F. Historical Kennedy. Historical use. Yeah, John F. Kennedy taped, uh, and, and indeed the Kennedy tapes have a lot of the uh, sort of play-by-play that occurred during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. Uh, many of the tapes that are in the Johnson Library, just to get off on him for a second, are basically tapes about his uh, frustration with the Vietnam War and his uh, involvement in the Civil Rights Movement. So presidential libraries themselves edit tapes uh, for obvious reasons. They want to make their presidents look as good in historical context as possible. So we often never get the full picture of what really was said. It's interesting that his lawyer, Fred Buzzard, in testimony before Judge Sirica, said, quote, and this is on the 28th of November 1973, he said that, quote, there are a number of blank spots lasting several minutes each on each of the subpoenaed tapes. So, it, it, I mean, that tells you that the tapes were deliberately erased by, to use Al Higgs words, a, some sinister forces. <laughs> Indeed. It's very sinister. It's the president. I think it's the president. When the president does it, it's not illegal. It's not illegal. That's right. So, of course, what Nixon is, is doing is waiting for the subpoenaed tapes to be revealed in court and then going and finding them in the archives. And, and he's working that tape reel machine. I don't know whether he was using, uh, I doubt he was using a razor blade and re-splicing. He, he may have been, though. <laughs> Well, and of course, uh, it's probably time to rewatch uh, Robert Altman's Secret Honor film made in uh, 1984, filmed right here in Ann Arbor in one of the dorms there on uh, South U. Um, it's a one-man show of Nixon after the resignation, listening to tapes, talking into tapes, talking about his whole nightmare, and his mother, his sainted mother, who we'll get to eventually here. Um, it, I, my re-examination of the uh, Cutler's uh, Abuse of Power book to prepare for this show. I mean, there's every time you look at this book, you can flip it open to any random spot and have an oh my god moment. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. just revelation after revelation. It's like wow, they actually said that out loud. That's the sort of thing you secretly whisper or think in hushed tones only to yourself. But uh, the. Uh, Explicit references to overt criminality and the attempt to sort of tamper it down with uh, linguistics is just remarkable. Uh, in this particular one, early in Cutler's book, this is uh, June 21st, 1972, uh, a fateful day for me. That was my ninth birthday. Uh, my family were vacationing in Florida, and uh, uh, well, I uh, floundered a bit in the sea. I almost drowned that day. So it's uh, fascinating to see what Nixon was up to on that day, whereas a nine-year-old, I almost perished. But uh, he sort of, uh, the segment uh, opens with uh, 
Nixon insisting that the break-in at the Watergate Hotel was of no consequence. Uh, Quote, breaking and entering without accomplishing it is not a hell of a lot of crime. Close quote. He was an expert at it. (laughs) He allegedly broke into a a dean's office to to steal a final exam. Whittier College. When his feet got caught in the window or something. (laughs) So that was uh, something he'd return to later, of course. Um, And he got in trouble with the dean there, too. But uh, it's a different kind of dean. But this segment opens with Nixon playing dumb. Uh, which, again, he performs extensively on these tapes. And last year when the uh, Penny Lane's film Our Nixon screened at the uh, 51st Ann Arbor Film Festival, uh, there was a lot of evidence of that as these guys all filmed Super 8 footage of each other filming the president. Uh, But Nixon breezes into the room, feigning ignorance, saying, what's the dope on this Watergate incident? Anything break on that? He's being cool. He's calm and collected. You know, I, right. This is after he allegedly threw an ashtray at uh, at the uh, fireplace in right. Florida. Gotta gotta play it cool. I'm not. I don't know anything about it. So what's the dope on it? Uh, and then uh, a little bit later in this uh, chronology here, there is uh, he's talking with Haldeman, and this is in May of '73. And uh, again, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, Nixon says, Bob, I don't think people give a crap. He doesn't say crap about the CIA thing. I really don't think they care. I don't think they care about bugging Ellsberg. I mean, about running into the psychiatrist. I really think they don't give a beep. I know that they don't care much about bugging the goddamn Pentagon. I mean, the the Watergate. (laughs) Wait a minute. Bugging the Pentagon. No, that's another issue. Uh, Bugging the Watergate. Uh, but Nixon continues, uh, I think the cover-up deal was a problem and the obstruction of justice was a problem in the sense that it looks like we're tried to, what I mean, we were not carrying out the law, so-called. Yeah, says Haldeman. Nixon says, that's a problem. <laughs> Indeed, it is a problem when you're not carrying out the law, so-called. I mean, this is the president. Yeah, and and it's amazing because when you when the the beginning of the book, uh, the Cutler book, Abusive Power, it's fascinating to uh, to read how Nixon had concocted the whole sort of game plan from the beginning regarding, well, what are we going to do about this Pentagon Papers case? Well, he decides that the the game plan is to link Daniel Ellsberg to communism. Failing that, we'll try and create this picture of him as a drug-crazed sex addict or something, you know, a sex deviant. That became mm-hmm. part of the break into the uh, fielding, the psychiatrist's office. Um, and, of course, it's it's about leaking. It's about deliberately leaking stuff. And Nixon keeps talking about it's a game that that I've played before. I did this in the Hiss case. And we're going to start playing this game ourselves. And, of course... The chronology in the in the uh, Cutler book essentially starts out with the the very first couple of days after the Pentagon Papers ruling, um, and this, of course, is what led to um, many of Nixon's problems. Now, what's interesting, of course, is historically Nixon had already been working on the Houston plan, quote unquote, because mm-hmm. that was actually developed in 1970. <laughs> So Nixon was uh, <clears throat> thinking about these things well ahead of time. 
and he keeps bragging about we're going to play this game too. This leaking game, this deliberate leaking of information uh, to spin the story. And, of course, he becomes very concerned about certain phrases. He doesn't like to hear the word executive privilege. He wants to talk about separation of power. Mm. He even mentions the executive privilege. I have, don't want to use that word. Don't talk to me about clemency. You know, he doesn't want to talk about clemency or immunity because he's seen how this uh, pleading the fifth didn't work too well for many of the people back in the HUAC days when he was on the congressional committee asking the questions. <laughs> and, of course, pleading the fifth before Congress has been used throughout American recent American history ever since the creation of televised hearings, uh, dating back to the Hiss case and some of the... Uh, uh, well, the Hollywood hearings that were even held in 1947. Um, mafia people, of course, have used the Fifth Amendment. And, of course, high-ranking officials in governmental s scandals uh, use the Fifth Amendment all the time. We just had a recent case uh, here uh, in, in the United States with the, the way Daryl Issa is using his government oversight committee to go after this IRS commissioner in Cincinnati where they're trying to create the impression in the in the eyes of the American public that there was some sort of a scandal involving what the IRS was doing in examining the 5013CBs and the 5013Cs and unfairly targeting right-wing nonprofits unfairly targeting yeah. right-wing nonprofits regarding the political donations and mm -hmm. whether or not these groups are providing under the law any educational format for the public if you can call it educational but i, I don't guess. know that carl rove who spent uh, in the last election cycle 168 million dollars on the campaign that was his group mm -hmm. uh was providing any educational function for the public he was a talking head on fox news <laughs> a partisan who even when fox news had called ohio for obama sputtered and gasped and, and said that denied can't it. be oh, that, that's too early to call that too early to call and it's like well not really the unfortunately the political science experts are so good now they've got this down to counties and blocks within counties mm -hmm. and when they get these precinct reports you know that that's how that's how they could always call michigan back in the old days it was it was macomb county and oakland county those were the two swing counties that determined how Michigan voted in presidential elections. Now, interestingly, in the 1980s, Macomb County swung to Reagan, which offset the gains that the Democrats were making in Oakland County. But now Oakland County is so populated mm. that uh, this is one of the reasons the Democrat and, and Grand Rapids is less Republican than it used to be, Kent County that when they look at Michigan's voting returns, they can just look at Kent County and Oakland County and say, Obama's got this in, in the bag. <laughs> but, of course, it was this, uh, the, the political obsessions of Richard Nixon, this spin, this ultimate public relations game that he loved to play. We're good at that, and we're going to start playing this game. He actually boasts, that, boasts to his aides in... The Watergate tapes that uh, we'll start doing some leaking. 
Yeah, and he uh, I've got a page open to that right now. He's talking to Ziegler and Haldeman, and he says, yeah, there's lots of stuff that the Democrats did that we can leak, uh, all the way back to World War II, Pearl Harbor even. Yeah. Uh, but I don't want to go that far back. Uh, I want to go to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I want to go to the Bay of Pigs, another obsession. Anything uh, to do with the Kennedys. Yeah. Exactly. Anything uh, to tarnish the Kennedys. At one point, he rather interestingly uh, sort of thinks out loud here. Uh, it's the Colson type of man you need. Uh, but we got Colson doing too much already. It would be very good to have somebody who knew the subject. I mean, what you really need is an Ellsberg. An Ellsberg who's on our side. In other words, an intellectual who knows the history of the times, who knows what he's looking for. But that is the whole point of Ellsberg, isn't it? Is that he was an intellectual who was also a man of conscience, who knew that Vietnam was a bad proposition for a number of reasons, militarily as well as ethically, uh, and did what he did because of his moral inclinations. Uh, I don't know if you could find anyone in the Nixon administration who was a man of conscience until later they were reborn in prison. But, uh, yeah, well, a couple of them became ministers, <laughs> including yeah, right. Colson and okay. Jeff McGruder. So Richards uh, <laughs> resigns rather than commit an act that he disagrees with, and so that's a man of conscience. Who Nixon calls Jed a couple of times. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, Tennessee Jed. <laughs> Richard Nixon listening to the Grateful Dead in the White House. <laughs> nope. Don't think it happened. Well, the Turtles did play, uh, was it Trisha's birthday party one year? So there were some rock bands in the, uh, in the Nixon White House. And Elvis met Nixon. Uh, that's right. Very famously asking for the Beatles to be deported and, after uh, they'd already broken up. And be, being given an honorary badge as a, as a mem honorary member of the DEA. Yep. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Uh, that picture of Nixon and, um, Elvis is precious. I mean, you can tell yeah. that Elvis is pretty much blasted out of Already his Already uh, a pill fiend by then. He's uh, He's got a very starry-eyed look. And uh, it was it, it, the whole the, the whole Elvis meeting thing was is just comical to read about how uh, Nixon's aides convinced him that it would be a good idea to meet Elvis. Well, and Elvis says, it would no. help you with the with the youth boat, <laughs> right? <laughs> and of course, by that point, you know, Elvis is. Right. I mean, that's the middle-aged vote right there, which is yeah. already Nixon's got locked up. Hey, Susie, what's up? Oh, man, Billy, after a weekend of partying and getting tight as a tick, I spent all my money on beer and cigarettes. Hello, boys and girls. This is Timothy Leary, and I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, the only hope here is WCBN-FM. If you're ever stuck in Ann Arbor, stick around with WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right on. You're listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, and the time is now 7 o'clock. And the show is titled Yazoo City Calling, established by Jerry Mack in 1988, our weekly program dedicated to down-home blues originals from all corners of the American continent. And my name is Weston. I'm sitting in this week. If you'd like to call and make a request, 734-763-3500 is the phone number. On this week's program, we'll be listening to a collection of phonograph records, starting with this piece by Chicken Wilson and Skeeter Hinton, recorded in 1928. This is titled House Snake Blues. <laughs> 